coming up on YHTV's special event, Cannabis, High Times and Politics. Join us with our amazing panel of extraordinary professionals sharing their expertise on cannabis. How is marijuana going to affect our society? What are the public health pros and cons? How are you going to vote on November 8th? This and more coming up on YHTV's special event. This week's episode is brought to you by Support the Mountain's Herbal Parasite Cleanse. This formula targets the small and large intestinal tracts and larvae, the most broad-spectrum formula available today. 100% organic, formulated by Dr. Mikio Sanki, author of the Esoteric Acupuncture Series. For 10% off your first bottle, visit shopyogahub.com and use the coupon code CLEANSE at checkout. Hello and welcome to YHTV's special event, Cannabis, High Times and Politics. Thank you so much for joining us on this exciting day. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me in a moment, you will also meet uh, my wonderful co-host, Dr. Glenn Woolman from YHTV's Ma- Magical Medical Tour. Um, and in the meantime, though, this is uh, one of our first roundtable panels, which we're very excited to present to you. Now, at any time during this show, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. Or if you're listening to this through a podcast or a device, um, give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. And please, we enjoy your questions and your suggestions um, at any time. And if this question is focused towards one of our special guests, we will be sure to get that question off to them and uh, get you an answer as soon as possible. Because during this time, uh, we are (coughs) gathering everyone together to bring some awareness and consciousness, of course, onto the topic of cannabis. And now with me is all our panel of wonderful guests that you can see on my wonderful grid. And um, let me introduce first to you, Dr. Glenn Woolman, uh, my wonderful co-host. Hello, Dr. Woolman. Greetings, Christina, and greetings to all of the rest of our panel. (laughs) And with us today is Dr. Jeffrey Block of uh, Nurturing Nature Group Consultants. He is a specialist in many, many areas of medicine, and uh, we are so grateful to have him join us again here on YHTV. Hello, Dr. Block. And a good afternoon from Miami to you, Christina. Oh, it sounds warm there, too. (laughs) And also with us is Dr. Roshna Patel. She's a medical marijuana expert, um, and uh, she is one that helps people go through their pain and discomforts and uh, guiding them through the use of marijuana. Hello, Dr. Patel. Hi, from California. (laughs) From warm California. And with us today is also Chris Conrad. He's professor at Oaksterdam University. He is also the author of several books and the newly released one, Newbie's Guide to Cannabis. That's for me. (laughs) Hello, Chris. How are you? Wonderful. It's great to be here today. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for joining us. So we're here today, and I have to let you all know, this is the first time that um, I myself, personally, uh, am registered to vote here in the U.S. I am finally now an American citizen, and so this will be the first time I get to vote in this country. And as I go through this, you know, there's, there's been so much, of course, controversy about cannabis, And I felt that um, this would be a very important show for our global audience, but mainly the audience here in the U.S., so that they can, you know, make an educated and uh, uh, conscious vote on which way they're going to go, you know, the pros and cons. And this is why we've brought you all together. Um, We didn't want to do a debate because that goes on and on out there, but we just wanted to bring awareness upon the subject matter. Wouldn't you agree, Dr. Woolman? Yes, uh, and I would say that there's two parts to this. We're, we're timing this, so it is before the election. And there are two parts, as I said. One is for the actual 
uh, office of the president, there are three candidates in three parties that are interested in moving forward progressively with cannabis and research, etc., and legalities. And there's one candidate that is not prepared uh, to move forward, at least hasn't uh, advertised that uh, the candidate was. So that's an important part of this. And then the propositions. These are also very important in the state of California and in many other parts of the country. Some states have already legalized in different ways. So this is very important from many points of view. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yes, I, I absolutely agree. And, and uh, so let, can we start um, with uh, Chris? Could you shed some light on a little history of cannabis in this country? Well, in, in this country, we go back to the founding of the country was actually based in part on the need for industrial hemp for the British Navy. And so uh, it was used as a tax break for people who grew cannabis here. Uh, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson were both big growers of it. And so it was a mainstream of American industry for the first 200 years or so of the of our country. And then uh, it was at the beginning of the 20th century, just as the industry it lost its importance in terms of an economic resource that uh, and the new equipment was invented where it was ready to return as an industrial mm. crop that the story about marijuana came up. So it got banned in California in 1913. The United States government banned it in 1937. The penalties continued to get worse and worse. Uh, finally, in the 1970s, when Jimmy Carter was the president, we started to see some changes on it. Uh, in between those two points, uh, Nixon made the Controlled Substances Act out of it, by the way. Um, and then uh, after that, we've got uh, the period of decrim that came up, the Ronald Reagan drug war that came up after that. Uh, things were still in Ronald Reagan mode until we got to 96 when California passed the medical marijuana law. Since then, 23 states have passed medical marijuana and four states have passed um, the legalization of, of adult use. And I think there's 15 or 18 states that have uh, industrial hemp laws right now. And Congress has done only two things so far to help this out. One was that they have uh, made it so the DEA doesn't interfere with industrial hemp projects that are licensed by the state. And the other is that uh, Obama has made a policy of not interfering with states who uh, regulate, strictly regulate and robustly enforce marijuana regulations, Mm -hmm. medical or otherwise. So that's where we stand right now. Wow. <laughs> I couldn't write fast enough. <laughs> it's only been 10,000 years. Mm, mm, my goodness. Um, so, I, I mean, we, it's only been 10,000 years. Oh, my gosh. And what interests me is how at one time it, it was legal and then it became illegal. And now we're trying to legalize it again, which is um, that that's what it, it's so topsy-turvy. It's almost like... Uh, now that the money can be made, uh, it comes back to the surface, you know. Right. And one of the things that's amazing to me is that the experience of uh, being among hemp fields is something that goes back to, um, you know, pre, before we invented fire, people were wandering through the hemp fields and making things out of hemp. And <clears throat> here we are today. Most people have never had that experience. But you have Tolstoy writing about it, uh, Washington Jefferson writing about it. Uh, it's been a common part of the human experience uh, relating to this plant, and uh, and now we've been deprived of it. So we're in a position where we're trying to rediscover things, uh, as particularly in the medical area, that we are just trying to relearn this plant in ways that our ancestors knew it quite well. And I think this is a real tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Dr. Block and Dr. Patel, your thoughts on this? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear that. Ladies first. (laughs) Uh, Dr. Patel, any thoughts that you'd like to share on this? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I should have learned about it in medical school. Um, It's, uh, you know, from my experience, having treated patients for all these years, I found that it's, it's, a wonderful medicine, you know, especially for conditions like chronic pain, anxiety, insomnia. Um, it, it works even better than pharmaceutical medications for those conditions. So um, I do feel like it's a tragedy. Um, I feel like we missed out on a, a lot of um, uh, potential um, for, for research and uh, for treatment of patients. Dr. Block? Well, I don't know if I'd call it a tragedy um, of the anything more than really prohibition, because the way I see it, for most of those 10,000 years that Chris was referring to, 
the plant really didn't look like it looks today. Hmm. And, and in the last 20 to 30 years, uh, it's changed its character and the constituents that are in it, because under prohibition, seeking out that which is prohibited is what is, is in vogue. So, in fact, the plant has changed its components of THC, the only psychotropic real element in the plant, from roughly 5% to pushing 25% today. So, Whatever balances there may have been in the plant over those 10,000 years or most of them until recently, it's rather hard to find now because most of the uh, strains that are out there uh, no longer represent a balance of many chemicals and those combinations of chemicals are what give cannabis its really best therapeutic effects. Hmm. Well, that's very interesting. So what you're saying is, is the plant from decades ago has actually been altered and changed. And it's not the plant's fault. We did that. <laughs> the hybridizing yeah. to it yeah. focused on THC. It didn't focus on cannabidiol CBD, the other more recently rediscovered major cannabinoid in the plant. And now it's only starting to look at featuring terpenes, terpenoids, also chemicals that give the plant its character. Mm. Even though they're not the cannabinoids per se, they do influence the effect that the other chemicals have when a user uses it, such that one variety is not the same, despite them both having the same amount of THC. Mm, that's very interesting. And uh, what we had learned before was they were all they were separating all the different components of the plant depending on what they were using it for medically. Is that correct? Well, they're being separated. More are being discovered all the time. Mm. Uh, the, the key is for physicians, and I'm a medical doc. This is what we're confronted with with respect to the realities of how to use it is one thing, but how to actually dispense it from a non-prescribable because of being Schedule One by the government, but authorizing patients to access it generally requires, like most other medicines, where you would want to know those active chemicals that are in it. And until not only the cannabinoids are, are known and listed, but also those terpenes, it's awfully hard to give a recommendation for just how much of which variety to use. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm hoping that that sort of uh, full disclosure of what's in it will become more of a standard practice as different states gather their own um, methods for what they choose to enforce for a regulatory environment. Mm -hmm. I'd like to uh, know what each of you believes is the most pressing thing that needs to happen or be changed within the process that we're working on right now from each of your perspectives in terms of either research or uh, giving it out to patients or education in terms of uh, public health? Well, I, if I may, I would say that the first thing we have to do is change the federal uh, classification of marijuana. It, the problem is that the classification of drugs is designed for single molecule compounds and cannabis is a plant. It really should be regulated as a botanical, uh, not as a drug. And that mistake in itself is really bad. I was excited that Bernie Sanders was talking about descheduling marijuana. That would have made a huge difference for improving our situation here. Uh, the other thing that we need to do, I think, is uh, get past prohibition because I, I don't totally agree with um, uh, the other <clears throat> doctor in term, Jeff, about the um, uh, the t big change in marijuana, I, because people used to smoke hashish, which was concentrated marijuana, and, and now we smoke, smoke more of the flowers. So, you know, it used to be more concentrated in the form people used it. I don't think that's that different. I do agree with them, though, that the prohibition has changed the nature of the plant by focusing on uh, THC rather than on these other wonderful compounds that are in there that we need to get the balance back in. And uh, I feel quite confident about that. And then the third thing I would say is that we need to start making this distinction between medical and non-medical use. And, and that's why I think we need to legalize marijuana for non-medical use because that way, uh, the way it is right now, a lot of people, uh, if you wanted to use marijuana for personal reasons, you wind up getting a doctor's recommendation and, and using it that way. Uh, but then we, how do we really know which people are sick and which people are getting it just for the sake of using it? And so mm -hmm. I, I think legalized marijuana is going to make it easier to do the kind of medical research that uh, Jeff was talking about. Okay. Rukta? 
So um, uh, one of the main things that concerns me um, is uh, laboratory testing. Um, I want to ensure that my patients are getting access to products that are um, uh, uh, of high quality, that are safe for them, um, and that have the uh, appropriate combination of chemicals. So what I would like to see is um, uh, rigorous standards uh, being implemented for laboratory testing. Um, a lot of it, specifically in the state of California, it's being done on a voluntary basis, um, but really um, uh, more and more regulations are needed. I know in Colorado, uh, in Washington, and Oregon, um, the state is uh, taking steps to, to implement standards, but uh, we have a long way to go. Um, the other thing is, is that when it comes to legalization, um, as a physician, here are my concerns. Um, uh, should medical marijuana get, get in, the, in the wrong hands. It can definitely um, exacerbate certain medical conditions. So these are conditions like um, anybody who's um, prone to having psychotic episodes, um, especially if you've been diagnosed with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Um, certainly uh, women that are pregnant or breastfeeding, um, uh, generally I advise um, against them using it. Um, so uh, anybody who has um, heart conditions, it can certainly exacerbate uh, those heart conditions um, if, if you're using um, the inappropriate combination of chemicals. So there are, from a, from a medical perspective, um, concerns that I have um, should it get legalized. Very good. Jeff? Thanks. Um, re really where I'm at today, and I look back at really the last several years that uh, Professor Conrad was just referring to, it, it's a science in its infancy. And in that sense, even though we now know that endocannabinoid receptors have been around for literally hundreds of millions of years, the plant that evolved literally half, close to half a billion years later didn't do so. Uh, we don't have these receptors because there's a plant there. The receptors that we have preceded that. And the reason that that makes a difference is even though it's been around that long, we've just found out about it. It'd be working through a receptor system as recently as the early to mid-1990s. So it truly is a science in its infancy. Uh, even though this is not a debate forum per se, I do take exception with Professor Conrad's comment about uh, the, the hashish uh, analogy. Hashish is a concentration. My emphasis in terms of what we've done to the plant is not simply to concentrate the THC, but by doing that and focusing on dominant genes for hybridizing, what we've done is we've changed the balance of those constituents that were around for most of those 10,000 years. Oh, so in, in summary then, we know very little about two things. We know very little about the therapeutic dosing that is most effective, and we know very little about the long-term effects when this particular receptor system is down-regulated. Now, that's important only because we have examples of a multitude of other receptor systems which respond differentially as they are, are activated uh, through outside chemicals. And that's the reality of where the science is today. It's advancing handsomely, more so abroad, internationally, perhaps even in the U.S. because of the constraints against researching it. I'm happy to tell you that I'm glad that that is slowly changing with changes in attitude from the federal government, even though it is still prohibited in Schedule One. Yeah, I, I didn't really dispute you on that, Jeff. I agree with you that the... Uh the ratio of the cannabinoids has been changed. I, was, I thought you were just talking about the potency. Thanks, thanks, Chris. It, it's a matter of the potency, though, that really is at play because most, and not all, but most of the therapeutic uses for those disease states which seem to show effects that are greater than placebo, in other words, actual hard evidence data, seem to show that the dosing is incredibly small compared to the way it's commonly used, at least by adult use. Yeah, so actually, um, I'd like to speak to that. Um, having treated patients now since 2012, um, I do agree that patients do overuse uh, medical marijuana. Um, uh, but I have found that, uh, again, we don't have hard data, but just from the clinical experience that, um, that I have, um, you know, I think any physician um, that has, you know, gen, you know, the education that you get in a medical school, 
can um, over time figure out, help a patient figure out dosing, um, help them figure out um, based on lab testing, you know, what potency of products and whatnot to use. So um, in my experience, I have been able to, to draw those conclusions just from treating patients. So a lot of it, I think, comes from experience as well. And that, those experiences are likely to increase dramatically with the rescheduling. If only to schedule two by getting it out of prohibition, it allows physicians to, to share it responsibly and prescribe it with therapeutic goals in mind to patients. So that's where a lot of the actual data will be derived from. It's challenging to do that right now with the constraints of limited research available. Yeah. Uh, well, I agree with all that. And I, I think there's a, another aspect of cannabis, which is, of course, it, it doesn't have a lethal dosage, but that doesn't mean you can't use too much by any means. Um, but it's, it's an intuitive substance where people, they don't necessarily have to talk to a doctor to find out, did my headache go away? Did my pain stop hurting? Uh, can I see better because my glaucoma is clearing up? Uh, they can just smoke cannabis and, and see that. So I think it kind of puts it in a, a slightly unique situation, whereas most drugs, people don't have any clue of what it is until the doctor tells them. With cannabis, they're able to uh, have their own experience tell them how it's helping them and whether they need more or less. And, and, and I have to speak on, on there are patients who need really large doses of marijuana uh, and to in order to function. Uh, but I, I do agree with you that most people can use a small amount and get the benefits. No question. Yeah. And actually, Chris, I disagree. Um, I have patients coming in that have been uh, using medical marijuana for um, a very long time. But with um, proper guidance, they're able to use it optimally. And one of the main objectives that I have with my patients is to use a lowest effective dose in a lowest effective frequency. So, so I do feel like um, patients need guidance. And the reasons, uh, a lot of the reasons patients come to me is because they want that guidance. I don't know if there's an intuitive aspect to it. Um, uh, and um, with this whole concept of larger doses, a lot of those patients have developed a tolerance to marijuana, um, and and nobody should have a tolerance to marijuana. Um, if you're using it appropriately, there just should be no tolerance um, to it. So I have a question about the varieties in marijuana, because I had been watching a program, and there's supposedly quite a few varieties that can... can uh, <laughs> Dr. Block, maybe as a horticulturist, you can uh, explain that. And if, is there a difference of, you know, if I'm suffering from a certain pain or a certain ailment, is there a certain variety I should be using? Or is it, does it come back down to the base chemicals that we're looking at? Well, both. Um, <laughs> the fact is that the plant, because of how much hybridizing has been done, is very hard to identify by funny names, Snoopy Dog Bush, things like that, without knowing the chemical <laughs> constituent. Right. So, so the, the need for actually saying what is in it from those uh, chemicals that we know have their effects is key. Right now, um, it, it's, it's, it, it's rather exciting that we're looking into the effects of the terpenoids in particular. And um, there are genetics that, unfortunately, when hybridizing happens, may have one particular type of a terpene as a dominant gene expressing itself in the plants that derive. So, in fact, those terpenes have varied results. And if you go back with people talking about the controversial names of sativas or indicas nowadays, um, uh, it's not just my opinion, but the genetics is starting to reveal that hardly anything is a pure or, or original indica or sativa, and that's because of the ways we've, we've changed it with, with growing. The last thing I'll, I'll touch on a moment is that in the early 1970s, um, a plant was found, it's Afghani Kush number one, and it's an indica by design, but it has some dominant genes and a particular growth habit that made it the darling for hybridizers, in particular in, in, Canada, in, in California. Um, so w when the seeds for this were first collected and popularized in Amsterdam and then out in California, it was coveted because unlike the normal hemp that, that Chris was talking about when we led into the show, it's not a textile plant that is 20 foot tall and easy to spot from a helicopter. Quite in contrast, it's a four foot squatty plant, flowers freely, has high THC, but it also has a particularly interesting 
um, terpene, and that's called myrcene, M-Y-R-C-E-N-E. And the difference between myrcene and most of the other terpenes is it's not simply calming or sedating, but it's actually, in anesthesiologist parlance, hypnotic. And the dominant genes that express that through this Afghani Kush number one in so many of today's cultivars um, is in of itself a confounder because it in of itself could be hugely responsible for what today's cannabis is that previous generations were not, which is a stoned effect, that being synonymous in this sense with hypnotic. Um, that may be therapeutic and useful, Christina, to get back to the source question if someone is convalescing and really with nothing to do. But when it's time to get up and go to work while you're still using the cannabinoids in it, the THC or CBD in certain balances for pain, that's not the medicine you want to be having a hypnotic effect when it's time to go back to work on a Monday morning. <laughs> well, well, I was... If I may interject something, there's some discussion nowadays that you could um, add terpenes into uh, different kinds of cannabis in order to uh, balance that out a little bit. And, and I was just wondering if the, if the doctor would uh, mind talking a little bit about that. Do you think that you can just add uh, terpenes into cannabis and have that work, or is it more important that they come actually in the growth of the cycle of the plant itself? No, I would think that it is entirely possible because, look, you can spray a scent on a flower and have it smell like something else, whether it's a good scent or a bad scent. So I think that anybody who's familiar with aromatherapy and the effects of how the olfactory system smelling works within our brains to give effects to different things, to have you seek something out or a repulsive smell, they're all different effects that work within our brains in very primitive ways. And so the fact of could you add or subtract, uh, subtracting may be a problem, but adding is entirely possible. The subtraction of the terpenes is actually a very interesting comment in of itself because terpenes are more volatile, meaning they, they sort of fly off the end of the plant as the smell. So as the plant ages, certainly as it gets heated um, in, in ways that perhaps were not the way the plant was designed by nature to affect people or plants or pollinators coming to it, seeking out that smell as a lure. Um, when you burn off, in a sense, those volatile terpenes, the plant may change its character considerably. So people who tend to vaporize the right way, which is to a certain critical temperature so as not to lose those terpenes, are probably capturing more of the original plant than adding to that is entirely possible, Chris. I know that's a, a big thing that we're talking about in the industry is the possibility of where people may be going. So uh, it's kind of controversial uh, in uh, the groups that I speak with. So I, I, I'm kind of inclined to agree with you. Um, not everyone seems to think that way, but I, I would think that if uh, the myrcene is what makes people feel that really sedative, like they're falling asleep effect, then adding a little to it would probably be helpful. Um, as far as it's subtracting, though, it seems like if you let it sit around long enough, it does just go away naturally, unfortunately. It loses the fragrance, and that's one of the reasons why uh, people used to keep the marijuana for years, and nowadays most people want to smoke within a few months because they, they really appreciate those terpenes. Fresh from the farm. <clears throat> I would like to uh, know why, since this is partly political, uh, and it's the timing that you brought up, uh, Christina, at the beginning of the show about the election and everything, why each of you think that both political parties are putting up millions of dollars either for or against this? Uh, in a recent uh, research that I did, there was over $20 million put in for the local California uh, proposition that's going on for uh, passing the bill and over a million dollars against it. What are your thoughts on why people are against it and why people are for it? Well, if I could just speak to the California bill, one of the things that's really good about it is that it, uh, it is requiring labeling for all these different terpenes and flavonoids and, and THC and CBD and other active cannabinoids as well. So I think that's going to solve some of the things we've been talking about here in the course of this conversation. As far as trying to gauge the motives of other people, um, you know, I, I do know that most of the motives on the side of the people who are donating to legalized marijuana is the social justice aspect of it, that regardless of what else they may think, they don't think people 
should be facing prison uh, for using this plant. Um, and the other side, uh, I think they are basically running from a position of fear. I do know that the re rehab industry has put money against it. Uh, I think that's a financial motive. I know law enforcement has. That appears to be a financial motive. Triple uh, A just came out because uh, they said they, they were concerned about the driving issue. I think they've really grossly inflated the fear there, uh, but it is a concern. And the initiative here in California actually addresses that very concern, so they should actually support it, in my opinion, because it uh, is going to allow for the research to be done on this whole question of impaired driving, not only with marijuana, but how do we test impairment of all drivers and get impaired drivers off the road. And that's a much bigger uh, and more important question to me than whether there's some nanogram level of THC in your blood. Uh, we're not sure that can affect that. Uh, we know it does affect it, but we don't know that there's any like um, equivalent to the 0.08 for alcohol. So uh, I think it's more important that, that we do what the initiative wants to do, which is get impaired drivers off the road. Excellent. Rokhna? Um, well, I feel like uh, a big aspect of it is economic. Um, I think people have seen uh, what sort of money there is to be made um, based on what they've seen happen in Colorado. So I'm sure that's a big push. Um, in terms of against it, you know, speaking from um, the perspective of, for instance, moms of teenagers that come into my office, um, that's a, you know, it's a big concern for, for, for those mothers um, of mar medical marijuana or just marijuana in general getting into the wrong hands. Um, there's still this belief. There's a lot of misconceptions definitely out there um, that um, kind of lead people to believe that it should not be legalized. Like, for instance, it's a gateway drug. That's a big question that I always get asked. Um, and actually, I have not found it to be a gateway drug. Um, in fact, most of my patients are coming in because they want to get off of prescription medications. So um, a lot of factors, but um, I think safety is one um, uh, when it comes to um, rallying um, against the legalization of, of marijuana. And um, economic is another when it comes to rallying for the legalization of, of marijuana. Jeff? Thanks, Ben. As an independent physician who really wants to remain scrupulously neutral as a scientist, I, I generally don't try to imagine what causes one person to vote one way or another to vote the other. Other than that, we live in a democracy based on capitalism, so in that sense it sort of screams out to me uh, the basic answer to your initial question. Uh, more than that, it's really hard for me to comment on only because uh, that democracy of capitalism is where we all live. I will comment, though, that in contrast, perhaps, to California, I'm in Florida, and Florida's legislation has yet to really get uh, a, a full balance of therapeutic chemicals to patient access, even though as recently as two years ago, we had a constitutional amendment which failed to pass a critical standard. In Florida, it's 60%, which is a rather high threshold, and that measure failed, but it did garnish 58% of the uh, popular vote. And in that sense, it just told me two years ago it wasn't going to go away. It's back again this year, and it's in the form of a constitutional amendment. And while I'm not sure that that necessarily is the right form for this measure, I can absolutely understand why Florida's citizens have been frustrated with the legislative process that led us up to this point. And uh, uh, so we're, we're very different in this right now at this stage in 2016 than is California or most of the West Coast. But in the same sense that California, is, as Chris brought up at the beginning of the show in 1913, actually outlawed cannabis as the start of a federal process that made it sweep across the country in the next quarter century, California has again sort of led the process out of prohibition that's sweeping from West to East uh, over approximately the same 25-year horizon. If I may jump into that question of the economics, though, because I think this is a very interesting point. A lot of people think that the motive for why they're putting legalization on the ballot here in California has to do with the opportunity to people to make money. But in fact, what we're seeing out here is quite the opposite, that the people who put money behind the campaign are basically um, social justice advocates, that the industry itself has put in almost nothing, the people who are profiting off of marijuana as it is now, that in fact, there's a big uh, back stab against the legalization movement by people who are afraid that marijuana legalization is going to interfere with their profit margins, that we have this established medical marijuana monopoly over retail uh, access to marijuana. And so a, a lot of the disinformation that's being put out is actually being put out by people who are financially uh, benefiting from a prohibition. Uh, and so even though we say, well, there's this big 
I think society looks at it as this opportunity to collect tax money, to create new jobs, to create new businesses, to maybe get industrial hemp going with who knows where that could go in terms of uh, the economy. But in terms of actually funding for the initiative, there is no big corporate interest apparently in legalizing marijuana. And I think that has to do with the uh, federal law because they can't really work. It'd only be a one state thing. And most of the big corporations are global or international or national in scale. And uh, until the federal government changes this policy, they won't be able to. So it, ironically, we're getting a lot of attacks out here in California on the initiative from people saying it's all about money. But um, when you look at the funding sources, you find that's not true at all. The money is behind this initiative for social justice issues to get people out of prison. Good point. So, so here we are in the U.S., um, and there are countries in the world that uh, marijuana has been legal. Um, have we learned anything from those countries at all? And uh, do you think that um, we here in the U.S. Uh, would be smart to adapt some of those forms if it hasn't affected their their people and their country in any um, sort of adverse ways? If I may jump in there, I think the irony of it is that the country where marijuana is most legal in the world right now is North Korea, because they never signed the International Single Convention Treaty, and you can smoke marijuana walking down the streets. But I don't think that's necessarily the, the direction we want to go. Uh, so that, that's just an irony. On the other hand, we have Holland, which has a good history of uh, keeping cannabis regulated. Uh, their age of consent is 18 as opposed to 21, which is the, uh, in the California law and in Washington. And Col I think every state has 21 right now here. Uh, so we can learn a little bit from that. One of the things we can learn from that is that the less uh, you sensationalize marijuana, the less young people are interested in it. So they find that, you know, um, two things I heard on that case. One was that when, when people are like uh, getting access to it when they're 18, it's less interesting to them. So they're not in a big hurry to get into it. The other thing was that uh, they found that by having a system like this, that when they find that Younger people, say an adolescent around 15 or 16, starts showing an unusual interest in marijuana. It gives them a way that they can start mod you know, keeping track of if there's some other issue going on with that young person's life. Because one of the things that we do seem to notice is that there's a pattern, not with just marijuana, but with alcohol and everything, that when people get involved with substances at an earlier age, there's often some other issue that really should be addressed. And so we have that opportunity. And then we have the third example that comes to mind immediately is uh, Uruguay. And in Uruguay, the way they have it set up is you have to uh, register. You have three sources of marijuana, either from a dispensary or from a uh, collective or or else growing your own. And the interest there is that their, very, their primary reason for legalizing marijuana is to get rid of the black market. So they're selling it at such a low price that the black market can't proliferate. And, uh, and from what I've heard, there's been no big surge of use or anything like that going there. Uh, one of the things I think that we're really learning from other countries is that the less you sensationalize, and, it, and, and prohibition is based on sensationalizing through fear, etc., and creating that mystique that it's an outlaw drug, that what the more you get away from that, the more cannabis becomes just a normal substance that finds a natural place in society. And, and that's what I think we really need to get back to here. I think it's what we've done with prohibition has really um, been bad for everybody all the way around. Um, so I have a, a question that, uh, you know, in my naivete, um, with cannabis, it is a natural plant. Uh, wh what about the, you know, if one started taking it um, and they chose to stop, is there withdrawals from it like you might get with other drugs? I mean, even pharmaceuticals, you have withdrawals. So I don't, with, with this being natural, will there be any such incidents? Um, so I can actually address that question. Um, I found that um, with minimal use of marijuana, so again, lowest effective dose with lowest effective frequency, patients are able to use it on an as-needed basis so they can come on and off of it as they please without any withdrawal symptoms. 
Now, when it comes to heavy users of marijuana, there is potential for withdrawal, uh, but those, those um, uh, withdrawal symptoms include things like, you know, changes in, in appetite, some irritability, changes in sleep patterns. Um, there's really nothing major physiological like you get when um, someone is withdrawing from alcohol, um, uh, in which case they get delirium tremens, you're, you're, you're shaking uh, a lot, or if you're getting uh, withdrawal from um, uh, excessive opioid use, in which, you know, one of the examples is of withdrawal is that you start sweating excessively. Um, I haven't found that to be the case with marijuana. And usually in heavy users, um, the withdrawal symptoms usually dissipate within a period of about, I'd say, four to six weeks. But again, this is only in heavy users um, uh, that I find this to be the case. Otherwise, it's really an as-needed medication. Mm. I would tend to agree with that. Uh, in fact, that the, the Withdrawal symptoms extremely mild in cannabis, and just speaking from my own experience as someone who uh, is a daily user of cannabis, that uh, when I went to Australia and didn't have access to it because I didn't want to risk the penalty, I, when I traveled, you know, then I stopped using it, and so I, I know that I I don't have those kind of withdrawal symptoms. But the one thing I noticed was that my I started getting my dreams back, meaning that normally I don't remember my dreams at all. Uh, without marijuana, I noticed I was getting those dreams back. And uh, frankly, they weren't as interesting of dreams as I was hoping to. If the dreams had been really exciting, <laughs> then maybe I would have thought, well, hmm, maybe I should cut back here. But the fact <laughs> of the matter is that uh, you know my dreams are mostly about trying to figure things out and being frustrated by some situation. I'm going, I go through that during the day. I don't necessarily need that at night, too. So, uh, But the, you know, basically what she's talking about, sleep patterns, appetite patterns, irritability, those are the only things I've seen uh, from even the heavy users getting off of it. And and, and I've talked to a lot of people who say that they just had to get off of it, and so then they stop. It's not like a matter of then they have to go to a rehab clinic or anything like that. Uh, they just decide it's, it's um, changing their lifestyle. They're, they're not getting things done or whatever it may be. That Actually, a lot of times it's that their interest is so directed on marijuana that they feel like that they want to uh, make sure that they get more balance in their life. And, and I, you know, I would support people who want to do that. And Christine, I might address that too at this point because there's really two different things that are at play here. One with respect to withdrawal. Withdrawal does not necessarily mean addiction if someone is symptomatic with withdrawal. And when Chris was bringing up about sleeping and dreaming, uh, it absolutely has explanations for how it works in terms of how memory uh, is affected in terms of, of how cannabis has effects too. So if you may not remember your dreams, maybe it's because that part of your brain, the hippocampus, isn't necessarily holding on to those thoughts the way it might if someone wasn't using. In terms of the actual symptoms uh, seen when somebody's withdrawing, though, absolutely, they're considerably more mild than, say, with alcohol or with opiate withdrawal. It doesn't mean that they're not recognized. The time frame, though, that Dr. Patel mentioned of four to six weeks. There actually is known why that happens in that rough time frame. And it's because of the effect that I started to say we're just learning about now on receptors. Those receptors that a chronic user has affected while they're using, when they stop using, those receptors are sort of missing what they have and yet they're not there and they're full and normal complement because of a, of a of a thing called downregulation. You actually make less new receptors. The difference is from when someone stops, and this, this study was done through the NIH a few years ago, within about four weeks, there's a near total return of the body's full complement of receptors, which means this receptor system is actually very plastic. It's able to recover effectively, probably with the single exception being those areas of the brain, including the hippocampus for memory, that may seem that it could take a few months. But in that time frame, then, and people who withdraw, that's one issue. Addiction, though, where someone is not wanting to stop or able to stop is still a recognized phenomenon. Not as addicting, of course, as many other drugs that are listed today as Schedule II and allowed, but addicting to a certain uh, proportion of the population, nevertheless, approximately 9% of users. So when someone's not using there and they're coming off of it, either they're not prepared or their behaviors changed to come off of it so that they wouldn't want to suffer or, or incur the effects of withdrawal. So there are really two issues. One is withdrawal in of itself, is another word one would be, is someone actually addicted to it to where their behaviors change and they don't want to realize the effects of withdrawal by stopping? Oh, thank you. Anecdotally, I would add that working in the emergency department, I don't remember ever seeing anyone that I had to treat for a marijuana or a cannabis overdose 
yeah. or, or withdrawal. I certainly occasionally saw a young person that accidentally took something or ingested something from a party that they didn't know they had, and they had maybe panic attacks and anxiety attacks, but I never saw withdrawals, nor did I ever see an overdose of any kind from uh, marijuana. Yeah, so same about with my experience in the emergency room. Um, when I, when there were patients that came in that, you know, overdosed on, on marijuana, it was mainly tachycardia, so racing of the heart that they experienced that they came in for, um, or they were having um, excessive amounts of anxiety. Um, and so those are the th- two things, symptoms that we treated them for. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons that we often say to people, you know, you be ready for that speeded up heartbeat, because if you don't know what's going to happen, then it seems like, oh, my gosh, what's going on? But if you know it's going to happen, that's going to be uh, acceptable uh, for most people. And the other thing that I think is interesting uh, about the dream sync uh, question is that uh, a lot of the uh, veterans I know with PTSD, it's the fact that they can't remember their dreams. It's one of the most beneficial aspects of cannabis. They get to mm-hmm. sleep through the night. They don't wake up in the morning with these horrible uh, traumatic ex- memories from the night's sleep. So uh, it, it's curious, you know, it could be called a withdrawal set on the one hand. On the other hand, it's a medical benefit for somebody else. Of course. Yeah. Uh, I, have a, I have another question. As we uh, go through the election and assuming that uh, things are going to change and it's going to become legalized, how do we as professionals find the medical benefits and also be concerned about the public health? Uh, how do we balance those two? Addressing public health a moment, uh, that's a wonderful question because now you're looking into the future. Um, obviously, when I said before about having a democracy based on capitalism, there is an element of this that would like to see things progress. And so there's certain uh benefits that are certainly being looked at seriously for the future assessment or analysis of when this actually does get out with legislation. What's not known yet truly are the true long-term costs to, to a society, either in terms of productivity. Uh, we, we talked about accidents, forgetting there's, there's a lot of things we don't know yet. And um, my only comment along those lines are that it's a science in its infancy, which is just what I said before. And so as more and more effects that are both good and perhaps not as good are known, that's important. Public health policy, though, California has had some very important public health policies that have helped people tremendously. If you go back 30, 20 years ago, clean air was a big subject matter, whether it was vehicle emissions or even after that with respect to tobacco smoke. Tobacco is in fact probably something that if you look at the study that came out in February from the UCSF uh, Public Health, they looked at how should cannabis and public health find its way to having a model to set up that might be good to follow. Because right now people are comparing cannabis to alcohol or opiates for effects and side effects, when in fact it's the tobacco industry that might be looked at most critically. Because for public health benefits, tobacco that's legal is in fact something that no longer is socially condoned the way it was several years back, and its overall use is decreasing. While cannabis, on the other hand, is illegal, probably shouldn't be. There's no need to throw more people in jail for having a joint. Uh, and yet its use is, and acceptance is increasing. And uh, in, in the final analysis for medical cannabis, uh, it would probably make sense to have it legal, so that physicians and patients can access it for medical cannabis, but we probably don't want people using it too much. And and that would be sort of my overall gestalt feeling for how public health policy might responsibly proceed. From a practical standpoint, I would love to see some sort of warning label on this packaging as to who should not be using these products, Um, like the conditions that I mentioned before, patients um, who are prone to psychotic episodes, patients who have heart conditions, because those palpitations that I mentioned, the heart racing can definitely certainly exacerbate um, someone's um, uh, underlying heart condition. Um, Anybody that has... um, any sort of, uh, you know, lung conditions should obviously shouldn't be smoking um, uh, cannabis. Um, and again, the, the women that are, that are that are pregnant and that are that are breastfeeding. So, for, yeah, I would love to see just like there's a Surgeon General's warning on tobacco products, something to that effect on marijuana products as well. Because the thing is, is that people aren't educated enough um, uh, about um, 
uh, marijuana. So it's be, I feel like it's being touted as a wonder drug, um, and it's most certainly not. Um, and I think the um, uh, the 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 adverse effects that it can cause are sort of being downplayed, um, which uh, as a physician concerns me. I have a somewhat I have a somewhat different opinion about the warning label things. Dr. Patel brought it up for obvious reasons to educate people who are using it. But getting back to the comparison, perhaps to tobacco, um, the same UCSF report absolutely hones in on that there were lessons that were learned in the tobacco industry, and in fact, the real message of education was not through the little warning labels that says the Surgeon General has determined or not determined that it may be harmful to your health, where you need a magnifying glass to read it on the pack of cigarettes and it almost gets forgotten. On the other hand, though, um, there are effective campaigns to show just what happens when you incur not just the side effects, but the abuse side of certain things, whether tobacco with nicotine. And they're much better as far as impact when you don't have to read it with a magnifying glass, but you see a television commercial, which may show, as I've seen one not within the last well, six months or so, the lady who, who um, probably looks like she's 70 years old, maybe as much as 40, and she takes her wig off and starts speaking through a tracheostomy. That's powerful. That, that has outreach and message. Um, so how, how things are shared for an education purpose doesn't always have to be a scare tactic, but I'm not convinced that warning labels on packaging is necessarily an effective way we've learned, at least from the tobacco experience. Well, from the initiative uh, here in California, what they're definitely doing is putting that kind of labeling on there. They're, they're making sure there's quality control so people don't get stuck with contaminants uh, with their marijuana when they use it. Uh, from the California Medical Association, the, the things that they felt were the most important, uh, and the reason they're endorsing the initiative here is because uh, they're concerned about the impairment and driving, and so this is going to really look at that issue very carefully. Uh, the other thing that they're concerned about is the lack of valid scientific data as a result of mixing the non-medical users in with the medical users and not really having a system to separate them. So I think that, uh, you know, what we're going to find here um, is going to, those are both going to work out, but probably one of the most important aspects of this initiative actually is that it funds 10 years of very solid research on what happens when cannabis gets legalized, where do we see the changes that are occurring in society, uh, where are the problems, how do we resolve those problems, and then it's a permanent uh, situation, but at least for the first 10 years, it's locked in very closely to monitor and adjust the uh, effect of the initiative based upon what the real world experience is and, you know, through our universities and things. I, I think that's going to be one of the most valuable things that this will provide other than the social justice of not having people in prison for a plan. I think it's wonderful when you actually have built in with that legislation a funding source for research. Um, California has led the country in terms of an ongoing uh, commitment to that for years and years now, and then that's been very helpful. In contrast, though, uh, Colorado's initiative initially that uploaded $10 million to the same thought, it was a one-time deal. And that $10 million has just within the last few months been divvied out, and there is no continuing source of revenue stream to continue meaningful research. I'll share with you that this receptor system and its effects is remarkably complex. There are generations of research ahead and an ongoing uh, research stream of revenue that's built into a tax base, I think, is essential to really accelerating the benefits of finding out more about this over time. Um, and that's what I'd hope would reveal itself as far as legislative measures taking that into consideration. I'm really glad you brought up the Colorado experience because what you said about the funding is one of the things that the authors of this initiative learned from Colorado. The other thing we learned from Colorado is you just don't let those candy bars and those edibles out there without letting people know how potent it is and expect them to figure it out for themselves and have the bud tender, as they're called, the person who sells the marijuana, be the person to tell them that. So in this initiative, what it has is a 10 milligram dose, and it has to be clearly marked or separately wrapped in order to make sure that people don't accidentally have experiences that we've had over in Colorado. Uh, of people taking way too much. And then the third thing is that this initiative allows for on-site consumption, because the other thing we've learned in other states is, yes, yeah, legal to get the marijuana, but you can't smoke in your car, obviously. You can't smoke in your hotel. Uh, if, if you live in an apartment, you may not be able to smoke it there. There's nowhere to smoke it. So in California, what we're going to have is licensed locations where people can consume it and share the experience, because I think people learn from each other. And this is one of the important things of cannabis. It's a very social substance, um, as well as being a medical one. And so I think it's going to be really good for society when people get the opportunity to mingle, mix and to uh, experience this and share those experiences with one another and learn from each other.
Well, that, that happened in your state, and to the full credit of it, the original dispensaries were not in Colorado. They were not those modeled after Colorado. If you think about it, you have to go back 30 or more years. The original dispensaries were probably the coffee shops around where you are, up in San Francisco in that area, with the onset of AIDS, when the first patients who were using it therapeutically found that in a compassionate way, when you took cannabis, mixed it with brownies, you could actually eat it and then squelch a lot of the nausea and vomiting from what people infected with HIV and, and AIDS then used to die from. It was not only pneumocystis carina pneumonia, but wasting syndrome, thin man disease. And so the community outreach, the fact that the dispensaries there really as coffee shops could bring communities together in a therapeutic way to talk about the health benefits, in this case, of, of cannabis use, um, is really a testament to the start of compassionate care being a very politically effective mantra that swept across the country. And, and that model was borrowed from the Dutch coffee shops. So, you know, we, we, we do learn from the other countries. And, and I think, you know, that's just part of human experience. We have to see what's going on. The problem is when we lock things in, we say it's prohibited and no one can blah, blah, blah. Well, then you're automatically eliminating your ability to learn because people aren't allowed to use it and to share those experiences. And, and that's another reason why prohibition has to end. I think, cannabis is, I think cannabis is really unique in the sense that uh, the public probably has more information on how to use it than the doctors. How are we going to move forward and uh, educate the doctors on when it should be used, how it should be used, etc.? So I don't think the public has more information on that. Um, I, like I said, I get patients all the time that tell me that, you know, um, uh, I don't want to get high off of marijuana. I don't want to smoke it. I don't want to get addicted to it. So teach me how to use it so that I don't get these effects from it, um, so that I'm using it safely. Um, so I, I don't know necessarily if the public has more information. I think, um, uh, you know, based on um, uh, the reading that I've done on research and then the clinical experience of treating um, uh, numerous patients, that in and of itself has given me uh, quite a bit of information in step-by-step -step walking patients through how to use it. So I think there may be a lot of misinformation that the public has from a medical standpoint. Um, uh, it, so, yeah, I don't necessarily think they do. And I think as physicians, um, obviously, you know, I think we need to be taught about it in medical school, whatever basic research there is, um, even if it's basic, we need to be taught about it then. Um, and then, um, uh, you know, in this, we have to expose residents uh, to patients that are uh, using medical marijuana um, uh, to see what the, what the effects are, uh, uh, you know, clinically shared with me a few patients who wanted access to more information and in contrast then to the way Dr. Patel mentioned about the patients not really knowing more, the patients have more experience probably with it and so in that sense maybe they know as a user but she's right, they don't really have more information. What's happening though is they're asking very intelligent questions of their healthcare providers and their healthcare providers then in terms of being educated should be able to answer those questions especially when they're basic. So it, it comes down to as I started with the role of of physicians needing to be educated on the subject, which is kind of hard when it's hard, you'll be hard pressed to find a pharmacy or a medical textbook older than 10 years that even mentions anything about the endocannabinoid system, in other words, the knowledgeable way that it, it figures on how it works. So in fact, if we look at the way other states, in fact, are progressing through this, um, there are some states that have mandates for continuing education. Um, certainly once it comes out of scheduling is schedule one, but becomes schedule two, physicians will will be obligated in a very different way to learn about its therapeutics. Um, but again, contrasting California, which has education, wonderful education programs, and research looking into this right now, Colorado, which is sort of leading the way, is a very interesting state for physician education. And I'm going to say something that's a bit critical, but I have plenty of colleagues there who are very well educated, who understand the plant. But there's a fringe element, and the fringe element of some physicians um, who don't necessarily know the plant but are in a position to authorize patients to get it, that's of concern. And uh, if you can tell in looking at me, I'm not your hippy-dippy doc. Um, and, and I say that because in Colorado, Colorado is an outlier state with respect to physician education. In all 50 states, when a physician renews their medical license, they're obligated to show proficiency with a minimum 
of continuing education of 20 hours per year, some states 30, such that every two years, for instance, in Florida, when a physician renews their license, they need 40 hours of extra education. There are only two states that are outliers, even among all the commonwealths included, and those are Colorado and Montana, where a physician, when they renew their license, does not need to have any continuing education to do such. I'm not sure that's necessarily in the best interest of certain physicians, if those physicians, in fact, may have been academically their brightest that they could justify when they got out of medical school many years before. I know that that's not the general rule, um, but there are some docs who operate that way, and uh, education is really what's grossly needed in that situation. Yeah, and I, I agree with both of those points. Uh, I think it's important that we need to get that training into medical schools, which hasn't been happening there. There are these continuing medical education courses around the country. I, I've talked and uh, taught at many of them myself and continuing legal educations as well. But uh, with the continuing medical education, so the, the main one that we have in the United States is the uh, International Clinical Conference on Cannabis Therapeutics, which is a biennial conference. Uh, then there are scattered ones around the country that where doctors get this training. And, and so uh, I I couldn't agree more that we need to have both of those aspects that needs to be brought into the medical schools. We need to continue to have the continuing medical education. And I'd also like to touch upon that other question, which was raised about doctors who um, basically recommend medical marijuana and don't have very much interaction with their patients other than that, because that's something that has physicians here in California concerned. They're concerned that uh, these, not so much that the, some of the patients are going to have a problem with the marijuana as much as they are that there's maybe an underlying condition there that needs to be looked at, not just a matter of, right. oh, take marijuana to not feel the symptoms. What is that underlying condition? And if the doctors aren't looking at that patient from that perspective, then uh, they, they could be ignoring something very important that uh, could come back and bite the patient later on. So that's another concern here in California. I think I want to ask one last question, uh, or we're coming close to the end, obviously. And we're talking about as more and more people start using it, it's going to be on the streets, people will be driving under the influence, etc. We have to talk about testing by the police, but also the court system. And I know, Chris, you're, you uh, work in the court system a lot. Uh, could you share some insights and in, in how you see that's going to play out? Well, the way that the law is currently here in California is that, uh, that it's illegal to drive impaired, uh, and cannabis is considered a possible impairment, but they have to first establish that you are driving erratically or impaired by the, the officer observing you, and then if they test the, the THC, uh, if it's in your urine, of course, that doesn't... Uh, well, actually, you get your choice in here in California. You can get your urine tested, you can get your blood tested. Uh, the problem is is that if it's in your urine, it could have been in there for months. And if it's in the blood, we don't know if it's impairing or not because some, there's no standard. And, and it's not just there's no established standard. There just is no standard. Uh, some people have ongoing levels of THC in their system uh, from being regular users that uh, another person who's a, no a novice user, that's going to be uh, a problem for them to consume. And so this is why what we've got in California here, and I really hope this initiative does pass, of course, Prop 64, is that they're going to really look at what is causing impaired driving, not just blame marijuana for it, uh, but actually look at what is causing impaired driving and how do we identify impaired drivers. And I think what the it's moving in the direction of having a uh, hand-eye coordinator type of testing. You can do it with a ball that has a, a different controls in it that they can see how well you respond to what it's doing. They also have touchpad things where people have to react. They, they can track your eyes. So, you know, that's the kind of testing I think we're really ultimately going to have because uh, I think when it comes to marijuana, that's just, you know, like it or not, there is some uh, usually minimal impairment, but we need to find a way of dealing with impairment. And, and it's not just marijuana, it's Xanax. It's actually lack of sleep, but I don't know how you test for that. So uh, I'll toss that back to you guys at this point. I, I agree with, with Chris there, and in particular, again, just to give full credit where it's due, Stanford has just come out with an article within this past week about testing potentially for impaired driving, and um, it, it's kind of tough to do it in the traditional way that we're used to for alcohol. So there's some very smart people out there who've dealt with these kinds of problems before who are in the process of problem-solving. And that's why it's important that we give them the resources they need to do that research. And, and again, another reason why I support this initiative. Mm. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, everyone. Um, Dr. Patel, is there anything that you would like to add before we end the show uh, that you might have thought of during the show or beforehand that you'd like to share with the public? 
overall a great conversation. We had uh, numerous perspectives, so that always makes for a great conversation. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Block, is there anything else that you'd like to share? Just in final analysis, it's, it's a situation where I believe that in many respects the cart gets ahead of the horse. And, and in mm -hmm. an analogous way, uh, the cart could be considered as anecdotal suggestions on how to use it that's really in the vested interest of a stakeholder, while the course itself is really more about the education that physicians and, and otherwise caregivers would have that's driven by bioethics. Bioethics is different than medical legal ethics. It has to deal with how do we get around problems that we never knew before existed in an effort to get past certain constraints. And so I think that that horse uh, of an analogy to the science and bioethics leading an anecdotal stakeholder cart is a very important sense of a metaphor there. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And Professor Chris Conrad. Well, I, at the Oxford University, we definitely believe that the more informed people are, the better. So I really invite people to come out and to study the coursework we have out there. Uh, the other thing is that my new book, The Newbie's Guide to Cannabis in the Industry, uh, a lot of new people are getting involved with it. Uh, this book talks about the experience of using cannabis, the endocannabinoid system, and the things we've been talking about today. Uh, and it also talks about the, I believe, the moral issues in, of being involved in an industry like this. And it kind of brings me back to where we started from, which is that this plant was originally used as a uh, industrial resource for the benefit of all people. We have a lot of illnesses today that are actually caused by environmental factors. Mm -hmm. And if we can return to using hemp as a resource instead of continuing to deforest, because you know uh, trees, cutting down trees became more popular because we didn't have enough hemp, the, the cotton industry, which uses some of the most toxic compounds of any agricultural product, is because we don't use hemp fibers as much as we had before that. Uh, all this energy, the, the pollution that we're getting uh, in the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, uh, that's tied to the fact that we've been destroying the plants and cannabis as a carbon sink uh, that would be Good for the environment. It helps to remove chemicals from the soil uh, that then allows us to grow plants like at farm crops, edibles in it that currently can't because it's toxified. This whole aspect of getting hemp back is so critical to the process that uh, one of the most important things to me about this initiative, Prop 64, is that it's going to take away the requirement for a DEA license and let our farmers grow hemp and create those jobs here and let us use this resource in a way that's going to be cleaning up the environment and maybe just kind of reduce some of the health problems we're having now uh, by improving our nutrition through the hemp seed, by improving our air through the hemp plant, by improving, improving the products around us by using natural fiber instead of synthetics. And so uh, this is a huge moment and a turning point in human history. I'm very hopeful that that we're going to see a change in the world that's going to happen November the 8th. And I urge everyone to vote yes on Prop 64 if you can. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And Dr. Glenn Woolman. I would just like to thank all of our panel and say how encouraging it is to see that there are people out there that are experts in this area and have true knowledge and passion about the process. So thank you all for being part of this. Yes, absolutely. Thank you very much. This, uh, you have Thank you. definitely educated me to the nth degree. <laughs> and uh, I will go up there and uh, make a very informed, conscious vote. <laughs> And of course, we would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We are grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. Now, you can connect with our special guests, of course, Dr. Glenn Woolman through his website, glennwoolman.com, and Dr. Rashna Patel at drrashnapatel.com, doctor spelt with D-R. And uh, Chris, Professor Chris Conrad, uh, you can uh, go to his site, chrisconrad.com. And um, our special Dr. Jeffrey Block at nurturingnature.com, nurturingnature.com. Now, all these websites and more, uh, full biographies, everything of each of our guests will be posted on our website in case that you'd like to learn more and be directed um, easily to their sites. Uh, you can go through uh, yogahub.tv. And um, again, if you have any questions or comments, please post them on the site or give us a call here at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Thank you so very much for joining us and supporting us in this wonderful panel. And um, we hope to move forward and bring you more in the years to come. Thank you. And until next time, namaste. Namaste.